Hello, good afternoon, good morning everybody and welcome to the second episode of the Clockwork CIO. Very much looking forward to today's guest, Mike Harris, President at Quest Partners, a New York-based quant fund. Before joining Quest in June of 2022, Mike was a partner at Verdant's Capital Advisors, where he was charged with enhancing and expanding the firm's family office, uh, multi-family office division. Uh, prior to this, Mike spent nearly two decades at Campbell and Company, also based in New York, and one of the most prominent CTAs and longest standing CTAs in the industry. So delighted to have Mike as my guest today. And Mike, thank you very much for, for, for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Mike, let's get straight into it. How do you think about leadership? You've been in a, a long career, very successful career. What's your approach? What would you say your philosophy is when you think about being a, a good leader in this industry? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question because when I joined Quest about a year and a half ago, um, one of the things that I, I talked to with Nagal, our founder, was a, a effectively, you know, what role am I going to play um, versus what role you're going to play, right? So when you have a a founder-led firm, um, there's a dynamic there, particularly when you bring in a, a president or a CEO. And, and so um, having a good understanding of what each are going to cover from a leadership perspective is important. And this was actually one of the driving reasons that I joined is that uh, Nagal is a very intellectually honest person. And he said he's kind of over the years figured out what he likes to do, what he's good at, and maybe where he doesn't like to do things or he thinks that he has a weakness. And he said, Mike, I love building quantitative models. I love studying the markets. I love working with our researchers. Uh, he enjoys talking to our clients about problems with their portfolios. He said, what I don't like doing, and I know I'm not good at it, is running the firm and managing people. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you're in luck because as you mentioned, my experience at Campbell, um, I was there for 20 years. Eight of those years, I, I was president. And and that was a big part of what I did was kind of, you know, keep the trains running uh, day to day uh, from an operational perspective. And so I think the first thing about leadership is understanding what's required of you, uh, what's expected of you. And if you're working with other leaders, knowing kind of who has who has what and who's accountable um, for what. Um, I honestly have to tell you that I think the biggest one of the biggest challenges of leadership is managing what I call the strategic and the tactical, right? So um, as a leader, you know, you're charged with looking out beyond, you know, next week and thinking about where will the business be in a year, three years, five years, 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that requires strategic planning. But it's very, very easy, particularly when you're in a, a president or a COO type role, because you're charged with keeping the trains running on time and running the business, you know, the, the emails are always coming into the inbox. The phone is always ringing. There's always something that requires your immediate attention. And so you can spend 100% of your time solving tactical issues. And so to me, mm -hmm. I always try to work on that balance. And, and every single day when I start my day, I look at my calendar and I try to think about what parts of my day am I taking time out to think strategically and work with the management team on the future direction of the company versus how much time am I going to dedicate to, you know, dealing with the issues of the day. And uh, when I talk to other leaders, I think many of them concur that this is always the biggest challenge. I, I think I'm right in saying that maybe Elon Musk, he doesn't like meetings to be more than 10 minutes. Uh, if you haven't got something to say, don't say it, don't have the meeting. I mean, you know, you've got to be really, pretty disciplined about how you manage your time, clearly, Mike, especially when you're trying to continue to build that strategic vision for the firm. I, 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 have you found that easy to, to make that balance? It's never easy. Um, but I think that the important thing is recognizing it, you know, to your point, understanding as I come into, as I said, every day, every week, that I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, if I'm thinking about it, if I'm looking at it, if I'm analyzing it, then chances are I'm, I'm winning that battle. Meaning 
I'm making sure that I'm putting time, uh, time aside. There was a, a great book that I read years ago called Deep Work. I can't remember the author, author off the top of my head, but for deep work, and this was me thinking more about some of our PhDs and, and other quantitative scientists that were working in our research department, this book basically says that if you don't dedicate three to four hours to a, a very detailed task, um, your brain doesn't actually get into the mode of doing what's called deep thought or deep work. Now, I don't know that I have four hours in a day to dedicate to you know strategy, but I will tell you that one of the things we do as a management team every three to six months is we'll do a full day offsite, right? We'll get out of the office where you have no tactical distractions and we'll have a very robust agenda and we'll go through um, you know, the planning exercise. That has been very valuable. But I think you, you've got to do it more frequently than that. It's got to be at least once a week that you're putting time aside to kind of think about the big picture and to plan for it. And we were joking the other day that if, if I could change one thing in, in Microsoft uh, Outlook, <laughs> it would be that the meeting blocks are typically 30 minutes or 60 minutes. Yeah. yeah. And we do a lot of quick, quick meetings at Quest that are just 15, 15 minutes. And you can, you can edit them, but it, it doesn't look pretty on your calendar. But if you start a meeting and say, we've only got 15 minutes, it's amazing how quick you get to you know, the matters at hand. When you have an hour on the calendar, you end up spending 15 minutes just making small talk at the beginning because you don't feel the urgency to kind of get right to the point and, and to the issue. And I feel that by doing those quick meetings, we save so much of kind of our collective time, which then frees up time for you to put a block for of an hour on your calendar in a given day. And maybe you don't know what the project is you're going to work on, but if that time is spoken for, then, you know, as I said, when that day comes around, guaranteed you've got something that you can put a deeper uh, level of focus on. Yeah. Would there be any key principles or, or values that, that shape or guide your decisions, your actions as, as a leader? Again, looking at your time previously at Campbell, at uh, Verdance, what Anything that you've learned along the way that you think is has really sort of s s held you in good stead that you apply today? Yeah, so I, I've got a couple that I can mention. Um, you know, there are four that I was part of working with Nagal and the team to outline at Quest, and they're they're not specific to our firm, but they're very important to us, and I think they could be you know helpful to some of your listeners. So. The first one is what we call intellectual humility. So intellectual humility is, is effectively understanding, you know, the strength of your ideas. So in the hedge fund world, right, we have two concepts we talk about constantly. You have alpha, which is any, any, any particular advantage you have in the market that's better than the broader market, right? And then you have beta, which is the market itself. And so we use those terms all the time when we refer to people's ideas. Knowing if your ideas are beta, meaning you read it in a book somewhere, you went to a conference and heard someone say it, that's not necessarily your idea. It might be an important one, but it's coming, it's pretty generic, if you will. An alpha idea is something that's truly unique that, that you kind of created on your own or maybe you know in collaboration with others. And so understanding effectively where your ideas sit I think is really important because if you're just pushing around ideas that you've heard in other places, um, it might not add a lot of value. The second is what I call transparent collaboration. So there we're really thinking about accountability, right? So being very, very transparent about your, your work and then working with other members of the team in order to kind of advance, you know, whatever the firm's mission is, uh, is, is, is crucial. And know, knowing what you own and what your teammates own and, and having that kind of be very recognized is important. The third is what we call agile execution. So this is um, something that I know a lot of firms do, but it's something very close to our DNA. <coughs> we believe in what's called rapid prototyping. So when we have one of these ideas and we've identified that it's an alpha idea, something that we think is unique, one of the first things we do is we, we set up a two-week sprint. 
So we say we send somebody off to go and, and kind of bird dog, whatever that is. And they're going to work on it for two weeks. Then they're going to come back and they're going to say, hey, we find we found some efficacy in what we're doing. We think there can be some real results here. Now let's set up a longer project and go and attack it. But if if the person comes back and maybe that person is me and says, eh, I'm not really sure that there's a whole lot in this. We have to be prepared to just put it on the shelf, document what we've done, and then move on to something else. I think this is crucial in business and actually relates a little bit to what we were talking about with our 10 or, or 15 minute meetings. You know, Don't spend six months working on something that you knew in the first week probably wasn't going to end up with, with a good result. We have all firms have limited resources. And so being focused and, and really prioritizing the most important projects is crucial. And the last one is what we call knowledge continuity. And so there, once again, it goes back to collaboration. It's not just about your individual effort. It's about the collective effort of the team. But then, and this gets into, I know something we're going to talk about a little bit later with kind of this AI bubble that we're in. It's how can we automate that, that piece of knowledge? How can we get that running in the background so that we can then move on intellectually and start thinking about kind of new concepts and new ideas? We're not stopping what we did, but we found a way to create a process so that it's happening in the background, if you will. And we feel that kind of you're building upon kind of, if you will, the ideas and the, and the revelations of the past and just adding new threads to it over time. Um, which is crucial. I'll just say at a high level that, you know, <clears throat> one of the books that I read that I think probably many of your listeners, if they haven't read, they should, is uh, the Harvard Business School has got a, a great approach to what they call emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I don't have time, obviously, today to go into it. But, you know, self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills, to me, are the building blocks of being a good leader and I probably reread that book every six months to a year, because even though I feel like I have it committed to memory, it's important to remind yourself sometimes that, you know, just things like, you know, giving your 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 team members regular uh, and what I call balanced feedback. Right. So not just, hey, this is what you did wrong. This, you know, you can do it better. But I think one of the keys to being a good leader is recognition. And when you know, when you look at the studies over the years of what employees really care about, yes, compensation is up there. But in many of the, the HR studies that I've read over the years, actually recognition comes in higher than compensation. People do good work, they work hard, and they want their leaders to say to them, gosh, you knocked that one out of the park. I, I think you did an amazing job. Thank you for your efforts. Thanks for working late. Thanks for staying and coming in on the weekend. Um, anytime you're seeing that, you know, if you're giving that positive recognition, it's that much easier for that person when you then circle back to them two weeks later and say, hey, just a little bit of critique on the last thing you worked on. You, you got to balance those two. Especially in a high pressure environment, you know, you're a quant fund. The industry is renowned for being, yeah, it's a cutthroat industry. So I think... People are under a lot of pressure and they've paid well to deliver. So they've got to expect that that critique, that 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 constructive criticism if they maybe haven't done something as well as they could. But equally, as you say, that that just getting that positive reinforcement from your leaders, great job, smash it out of the park, great trading idea. I mean, those things are so important to to everybody especially the younger generation coming through it's that feeling of self self-worth that that hey i i they see me i'm doing a good job here that that goes a long way more than you'll ever know <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to your early days mike where did you where did you grow up what was your what was your family background yeah, so I grew up uh, outside of Washington, D.C. in suburban Maryland. Um, interestingly enough, you know, my parents bought a home in the 1960s and they had a choice between two counties in Maryland outside Washington. One was Prince George's and the other was Montgomery. Um, 
you know, if, if you're from the area, you would know these areas, but was really interesting looking back now, almost 50 years later, um, Prince George's County is, is still a, a, a county that struggled economically. And Montgomery County is actually, I think, in the top five for some of the richest counties uh, in the United States. And so though they seem very similar 50 years ago, they've gone in very different directions. Unfortunately, my parents, I think, were, you know, trying to pinch pennies a little bit, as you do in your in your early family life. And they chose to buy a house for, I think, $5,000 less in Prince George's County, which, you know, 40 years later when they, or 30 years later when they sold the house probably cost them, you know, four or $500,000 in resale value. I mean, it was, they, there's no way for them to have known at the time. Um, but I, I, you know, like a lot of people, I think they grow up in tougher neighborhoods. I actually think that it's one of the keys to my long-term success. It, it keeps me humble. I, I still stay in touch with a lot of my good friends that I grew up with um, in those na- na- neighborhoods. We've gone on to very different paths in life. And um, I, uh, I grew up with a mom and a dad and, and a sister and um, great family life. And, you know, interestingly enough, from an education standpoint, when I got to, uh, to my junior high and, and high school years, um, the schools were, were pretty tough uh, and, and not great in my area. So my parents, and this was the, I think the first sign that maybe they had made a mistake, had to, you know, spend a lot of, of, uh, of the family capital to send me to private school. Um, and that, and that changed my life as well, because going to one of the top private schools in the Washington area, uh, St. Andrews, I was able to, you know, meet with, um, students that, you know, were from a completely different background, many of whom their parents were politicians and working in Washington, uh, ambassadors from other countries. So I got a really a good global feel at an early age uh, and many heads of business. So I kind of think fast forward to today in my career and there there's rarely a circumstance where I meet with a government official or, or, or a very, very wealthy family or someone that's running a, a pension fund. And I, I rarely feel nervous. And I think that that was because I was exposed to it, as I said, at quite a young age. Yeah, that's um, and, and so that in that environment, um, that must have been quite inspiring. As you say, uh, your peers were from very diverse backgrounds and sounds like very prestigious backgrounds. Um, did that? Were there any signs of, of leadership early on in in your formative years at St Andrews, or did you did you try to run for? class president or did you (laughs) anything that that you felt like uh you know you were you were molding yourself or even sport Mike I don't know if there was something from a from a sports point of view that that you you really enjoyed yeah I grew up playing uh soccer and lacrosse uh both through through school and was captain of uh a number of teams uh I was just trying to think if I had president of my high school senior class on my LinkedIn profile um, I don't think I do, but but I did run for president and 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 held that role for a year. Um, I remember actually, I think it was one of my first grade teachers, and she used to call me Prez. And and my mom at, at a a meeting with her asked, you know, what what's with the nickname? And she said, oh, I think Mike's going to be president, you know, one day. So um, <laughs> for whatever reason, I guess I just always um, was somebody that you know I. I Listen, I've learned so much about leadership. And if there's one thing I've learned is that I have a lot more to learn. Um, but I do think that there are people naturally that would rather be part of the team uh, and and work under somebody as opposed to those that just naturally want to kind of grab the reins and, and, and drive the team, whatever it is, forward. Um, you know, you ask about people that had an influence on me. Um, actually one of my greatest influences at a young age was my maternal grandfather. Um, they didn't live with us, but they only lived about 40 minutes away and he would come and visit, you know, every, every weekend. And he was retired, as you can imagine, um, having never worked in financial services, but always had a passion for the markets and for investing. And I spent a lot of time with him as a, as a young boy kind of fishing and, um, he was a, he was a big American baseball fan. So we went to a lot of, uh, a lot of Baltimore Orioles games, which is funny because they, they, they were good then they've gone through a stretch of being <laughs> underperformers. And now this year they're, uh, 
they've already made the playoffs and they're looking pretty good. So I'm thinking about thinking about him in these days. But yeah. um, my grandfather was uh, an incredible leader, and and certainly I, I took a lot of um, you know who I am from him. It's funny, you know, he bought me my first stock when I think I was in first or second grade. Uh, I was collecting American baseball cards, and there was a company called Tops T O P P S that made those cards. They were going public. And so my grandfather as a birthday present bought me some shares. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I had a little notebook. I tracked the stock price every day. Um, we talked about, you know, earnings and the firm's performance. And um, it was just a, a wonderful way to, to expose a young person to what investing is and was really the beginning of my now, you know, call it 30 year career in finance came about as a result of of him kind of putting that in front of me and and me catching the bug so to speak yeah that's a great story um and so did you um you, you studied economics and japanese studies at uh, a gettysburg college i think is that correct i did you know i once again because i knew at a very early age i wanted to go into finance you know i i really feel that when students and i i teach at the university level now give a lot of lectures on career development and, and finance and, and alternative investments like hedge funds. And what I see oftentimes is that students usually fall into one of two buckets. Um, the first bucket is they've gone to that college because they have a specific program in law or medicine or, or business or, or some area where they've already determined kind of, they may not know specifically what job they want to do, but they know what industry they're interested in. And then the other kind of group of students are, and it's perfectly fine, just for whatever reason, haven't found their passion yet. And so they're using that undergraduate experience to take a lot of classes and hopefully figure out, you know, what it is that motivates them. Well, I, I was in the first group. And so I knew that I wanted to 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 go into the investing world. And uh, I had a mentor in high school that that I had just asked the question to, do you think I should study? I think at the time, should I get a, an undergraduate degree in business, maybe accounting? Um, and he was the one that actually encouraged me to study economics. He said, you know, if you're going to do any sort of business management degree, you'll probably want to get a master's degree later in your career. So study something a little bit more generic or general. And obviously, you know, the fact that I'm now, you know, I've been trading the, the macro markets for quite a while, having an economics, you know, background, um, is is really helpful in that regard. And then on the language front, this mentor just had said to me, hey, he was in banking and he said, hey, listen, one thing this, you know, that he was seeing was that the markets were becoming more and more global. Yeah. And he said, you know, learning a foreign language would be a really important way to be able to communicate with other market participants. Um, and I asked him, you know, what languages should I think about? And you know, back then, coming out of the 1980s, when the Japanese were a huge player, they still are, but uh, arguably some other countries have, have maybe outgrown them in recent years. Uh, he recommended at the time that I that I think about Japanese, Russian, and as technology was starting to take off, you know, he suggested that maybe I think about you know computer science and and early kind of learning how to code. Uh, my father actually worked for IBM, and he had got me into coding at a young age. So I already kind of had that. And when I got to Gettysburg, they didn't they didn't offer Russian. They had just started a Japanese program and so started taking classes, uh, fell in love with the with the language and the culture and uh, actually spent um, a year abroad uh, studying at a sister university in Japan to to really work on not only my Japanese skills, but more importantly, my understanding of their culture uh, and their economy, um, which was uh Fascinating. Uh, absolutely. I mean, again, that, I'm sure that molded you, your character. So when you're in a, a, a completely different environment, in fact, my, my, my first guest also spent a year in Japan. So there's a, a bit of a, a synergy here. Um, but yeah, it was a, it's a, it, those experiences in, in your early life. Uh, I think anyone that travels to another country before they start their career, it, it, it's a it's a real eye opener, isn't it? In terms of understanding more about yourself, how to treat others, how to communicate. I mean, anything that stands out for you in your time when you were there? Yeah, no, I, I will tell you that um, 
it, it changed my life. And my own children are <clears throat> not in college yet. They're, uh, they're a couple years away, but I've already told them that, you know, I'll be very disappointed if they don't do some sort of a study abroad. I don't care what part of the world they go to, but um, it's, it's one of the, you know, one of the advantages of the United States is it's such a big country and, you know, with different types of people, with different accents and different, uh, you know, landscapes, and you can drive for hours and hours in a car, go to unique places, but it's still part of the United States. And so for that reason, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but Americans don't travel abroad as much as say someone living in Europe where, you can hop on a train and in 30 minutes be in another country. I think that when you go to another country, particularly if you live there for a period of time, you know, you start to understand that their perspective on the world and, and on life is different maybe than what you grew up with. Um, I, to this day, read newspapers around the world to try to get a good sense of not just, you know, the American perspective in the U.S., I will read both conservative and liberal sources to try to get a feel for how different segments of the U.S. population are looking at the world. But then I'll go to, you know, BBC. I'll look at Sky. I'll go to uh, the Nikkei Shimbun in Japan. I'll, I'm looking constantly at how different countries are, are viewing the events of the day because I think it gives you a much better perspective. And hey, let's face it, being in the global hedge fund world, you know, two thirds of our portfolio is outside the United States. So it's I'm watching world events constantly. But let's also remember that a lot of my clients at Quest and at previous firms are also foreign investors. And so when I'm going to go fly to Europe or Asia or the Middle East to meet with them, I need to have a better understanding of of how they're they're looking at things. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I mean, I, I was away just this week in, in France. Uh, I did exactly the same. I, I watched uh, France 24, the news channel, uh, just to get a bit of a different perspective on, on what they're reporting, how they're reporting, what, what they're reporting. Uh, it's, it is good to get that different, that different viewpoint of the world. And, and I think, yeah, I, I, I entirely see where you're coming from with that. It's, uh, it's always good to remove yourself from your immediate there's a danger of, of the echo chamber, isn't there? I guess with with all of us that that you know we we take our news from the same sources day in day out, and it, it it's good to get that wider perspective. It's a, it's actually it's a great point. It's something that I worry about a lot in this country as the political divide continues to grow. That now that we have these twenty four hour day uh, news channels that people can watch and. You have obviously associated radio stations that all the speakers are writing books about them and pushing those books and obviously, um, you know, Internet sites as well. You have this reinforcement principle where people go to the far right or the far left and and they're just hearing the same stuff from the same people that's reinforcing those beliefs. And I think that in order to have some sort of meeting of the middle, which is what you have to do in order to move policy forward. You know, you don't have to necessarily agree with the other side, but it's really important to at least hear, let them speak their mind, hear them out. And if you're not ever reading or listening to those other media outlets, which a lot of people don't, then uh, I think it makes the uh, the clash, if you will, that much more aggressive. And, you know, from a macro perspective, I, I have to tell you, I wasn't that surprised that that Fitch downgraded the, the U.S. Uh, earlier this year. And they said specifically that the U.S. has a debt problem um, that's been going on for years. And unfortunately, they're, they're, not, they're, they're very worried about the, the, the ongoing funding of the government because the two political parties just cannot seem to agree on anything. And mm -hmm. as we go into the second half of 2023, that's starting to become one of the big macro risks is will we Will we see another government shutdown and how bad will it be? How long will it last? It, it just feels like the parties are so far apart that uh, that's a real possibility. And I'm sure we'll create some volatility in the markets. That's definitely something to, to watch carefully. Um, before I come to getting your thoughts on team building, Mike, I, I just I think it would be as we kind of sequentially go through the uh, the the the. the the time frame of your career. You started at Morgan Stanley. I, I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about that experience before you moved on to Campbell. 
you know, Morgan Stanley, obviously one of the biggest institutions on Wall Street. What, what, what was that like? Was that like what, stepping into the crucible? Did, how did you deal with that environment in, in that early stage of your career? Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate when I started my career on Wall Street at Morgan Stanley. Um, interestingly enough, um, I, I started at Dean Witter and uh, we were acquired by Morgan Stanley. And so, or, or, you know, potentially it was a merger, but I think, you know, arguably Morgan Stanley was the, the bigger player in that deal. And, uh, and so I got to live through some merge, some M&A activity, which now there's been so much consolidation across, um, particularly in financial services that, that many people who have, who've been around the block have, have lived through some of these mergers and acquisitions and how difficult they can be, particularly when the cultures um, are different. And in that case, you know, Morgan Stanley was more institutional. Dean Witter was a, a retail, more wealth management player. And so I know that they're definitely, uh, <clears throat> there, there was a, a few people and a, and a few teams that, that, that ran into each other, you know, head, head for head. But yeah. uh, um, it was an incredible place to start. Uh, you know, you talk about, you know, leadership and, and some of my mentors, you know, I, I worked under three people that really changed the course of my career. Mark Hawley, who ran the Dean Witter Managed Futures Department, you know, really was the first time that I had really gone, you know, and understood how quantitative and systematic investing is different than the fundamental approach. And, you know, given that that department was almost exclusively investing in quant funds, um, it was an amazing place to learn about it. Bob Murray, who I reported into, who ended up leaving Morgan Stanley and and was the president of Graham Capital, which is another very large multi-billion dollar um, uh, CTA, and and they have discretionary trading as well. Uh, Ali Toko, who was my direct boss, who taught me how to do due diligence on on managers, um, went on to a very successful career later at J.P. Morgan. Um, but I I think that that was probably if, if I had you know I learned about the space. But then because my team was charged with finding managers to put into fund of funds, I learned from people like Ali and Bob how to basically pick apart a manager, find their strengths, find their weaknesses, look for the differentiating factors, what questions to ask. And so fast forward, when I go on to the, to the buy side to Campbell, and now I'm meeting with allocators like Morgan Stanley, I had such a, an incredible perspective on what did the allocators care about? What were they looking for? Um, how could I highlight the differentiators of, of Campbell when I was in those conversations? And more importantly, what were the risk factors that they were looking for as allocators that I could then introspectively look at the firm and hopefully make some changes proactively before the due diligence teams came in and started to poke and prod us? Yeah, well, I mean, that must have been... Uh, how many years were you there for, Mike? You know, I was only there for a handful of years. I joined in 97 and left in 2000. So, right. you know, it was three or four years. But uh, I'll be honest with you. Um, I think when you're a young person and you're just a sponge and you're willing to soak up, you know, as much knowledge and, and coaching from, from upper leadership as, as possible, um, it really kind of changes the course of your career and your life. Uh, and I'm sure you're still in touch with, with those early mentors that you mentioned there. We, we lost Mark a, a few years ago uh, to illness, but uh, Bob Murray and I just talked the other day and Allie and I are still very friendly. Um, it's amazing. You know, now I, I fast forward to today and now I'm, you know, through a lot of the young people that I meet through my university lectures, I'm mentoring, you know, call it 10 or 15 people. And um, it's amazing to see some of the people that I was you know, mentoring 10 years ago and where they've gone uh, in their careers. I'm, I'm having uh breakfast with a, a young man, Liam Marmo, who's uh, has a very successful career path now at Goldman Sachs. And I remember when he was the student who stayed after class to ask me uh, questions about my lecture. And I was incredibly impressed by him. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's been seven or eight years and we've stayed friends uh, through it all. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you get a lot of reward out of nurturing and, and seeing students really progress and, and become rising stars and, and I, i'm sure equally that applies to to the team at quest as well where you bring new 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 team members in that, that flourish i mean there's that, that there's a lot of lot of satisfaction from 
seeing somebody really reach their full potential. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, once again, I, I'm very thankful to all the people that kind of coached me over the years and got me to uh, the place of success where I, I now sit. And, and, and to me, it's all about giving back. Um, you know, one of the benefits other than just giving back to my university lecture series across a number of prestigious universities is it also becomes, to your point, a, a bit of a recruiting um, you know, technique for us in the sense that I get to meet these professors and, and they are firsthand working on the ground level. They know what students, you know, really have that intellectual curiosity and, and who the hard workers are and who aren't. And so when I need to hire a junior person, I'll reach out to a handful of the professors that I partner with and just say, hey, you know, do you have any good students that, that you might recommend? And it's been a, it's been a wonderful way to uh, be able to, to bring some new talent into the firms that I've worked at. Yeah, and I, I, it's uh, and certainly the talent aspect. I think across financial services, across the funds industry, the talent issue is is it's quite a. It's definitely become more pronounced. I think in the last few years, it's, there's a lot more comp competition. I think than ever before. Yeah, the the competition. You're right. I mean, you know, first off, we've been in a very tight labor market for a number of years. I mean, as the economy slows naturally across the world with central bankers obviously raising rates and and trying to slow down that economic engine a little bit to to dampen inflation, you know, we may see some of that uh competitiveness come off, but specifically in the hedge fund industry, you know, one of the the dynamics that we've seen is that um, you know, there's another type of of hedge fund called multi-strategy. Um, some of the biggest players in that space would be, you know, Millennium, Citadel, Exodus Point, Schoenfeld, you know, the list goes on and on, um, 0.72. Um, but these firms, you know, they allocate to a number of different strategies, which is how they get the name of, of multi-strategy. Historically, they tended to allocate more to fundamental or discretionary strategies. They always had some quant, but... What we've seen in recent years as quant has become more and more popular is that they seem to be allocating more to those to those uh, portfolio managers. And so for the first time in many years, we're starting to actually run into them as competitors when we're trying to attract strong talent. And listen, the, the benefit to being in a place like New York City, uh, a little bit like London, is that there is an incredible talent pool. People who want to work in finance oftentimes gravitate towards a, a city like New York. But let's face it, all the top firms are also in a place like New York. And so it means that, you know, we're going head to head with them when it comes to to trying to recruit, you know, some of the, the best and brightest. Can I just ask, now that we're in a post-COVID environment, uh, talking about now how you think about team building at Quest and, and the future team, um, are you looking beyond the confines of New York now that we've lived through that period where people were working remotely? Suddenly, the whole kind of concept of, again, being a hedge fund in New York, you're not confined to New York. You know, you can look west, west coast. You, you can look to Europe. You can look mm. to somebody in Asia. And suddenly... When you're thinking about where to find the talent, you're not restricted anymore. So is, has that become part of how you approach now the next phase of, 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 of looking for talent to, to bring into to Quest? And I just wonder how you think about that. Yeah, it's a really good point. So, you know, I think the first realization that I had during the pandemic, it's not like Zoom and these technologies didn't exist, you know, prior to the pandemic. I can remember going to meet with clients in the Middle East and after having just signed a check to, I think it was Cisco for a, a massive investment in, in video conferencing technology, only to walk into a conference room in Abu Dhabi and see the exact same piece of technology at the end of their conference room uh -huh. And thinking, why did I just fly 18 hours to do a, you know, a two-hour meeting when we could have both used our video conferencing technology? Now, listen, I think that what we've learned from the pandemic is that nothing replaces, you know, human interaction and being in the same room. Um, 
But I, I think what we've also learned is that maybe, maybe just, you know, and we're not here to talk about things like carbon footprint, but maybe instead of making two trips to the Middle East, I would just make one. And one, one of them could be, you know, a virtual interaction. And then maybe the other one could be uh, an actual trip. And, and that kind of realization and, and the comfort level that people now have with doing, you know, kind of, I, I can't tell you the last time I actually did a phone call with somebody in business. Every single interaction is like this one, right? And you think about just doing a podcast, probably five or 10 years ago, you would have invited me to uh, meet you in your studio and we would have sat across the desk from each other sharing a microphone. And, and now we're able to do this obviously through the same type of, you know, VC technology. And so you're absolutely right. We believe that, <clears throat> number one, though there's a lot of great talent in a place like New York, there's talent, you know, particularly diverse talent around the world. And one of the downsides to being in the, you know, call it one of the hedge fund capitals of the world in New York, is that there's also what we call groupthink, which is that people are going and working for the same firms, they're collaborating together and they're coming up with, remember when I talked about, you know, is your, is your idea alpha or is it beta? What we worry about, we're getting some of those beta ideas because they're being kind of recycled from other firms in our industry. And so, wow, if I could go and hire somebody in France out of directly out of academia, or if there's somebody in the, in the tech sector that was working for a Google or a Facebook or Microsoft, and they're based on the West Coast near San Francisco and don't want to leave there because their kids are in school, well, maybe I can plug them into my technology team and just have them working virtually. I still think that those people will have to commit to coming to New York, not once a week or anything like that, but you know, a few times a year so that we can be in the same room and we can get to know each other and collaborate. But from a day-to-day -day work perspective, you know, we have a real openness to look for talent you know, outside of a place like New York and for that matter, outside of the United States. I mean, tech companies have been doing this outsourcing in places like India, uh, Russia, parts of Eastern Europe, and now LATAM um, with, uh, with developers. And I think that now that a lot of companies have gotten comfortable with that, you know, the only barrier seems to be the time zones. And in many of these geographies for a, for a higher wage, people are willing to work outside of their normal hours. I can relate to that because when I first got to Campbell, I, I traded the European markets for three years. So I had to wake up at one in the morning and, mm -hmm. and trade the, the London Open at 2 a.m. and go home at 10 or 11 o'clock and sleep at odd hours. Um, but the advantage is also that when you have a team on the other side of the planet, when your workday ends, you can pass the project to you know, follow the sun to that next team. And then by the time you come back to work in the morning, there's, there's progress on that, right? So you can make the case that it actually can be something that really helps you scale and speed up the, uh, the productivity of your work. I just want to move to <clears throat> leading through challenges, Mike, because uh, again, this is a, an industry that, that demands a lot of one's mental agility. It, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of, honest criticism of, of what people are, are doing and the ideas that they're coming up with, that they're, they're, they're trading prowess. It, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough industry. So I just wonder what strategies have you employed to, to motivate and to inspire your team during a challenging period in the market? Mm. It's obviously been pretty volatile the last 18 months or, or just within the firm itself. Uh, mm. we, we've spoken earlier about the, the positive reinforcement when you do a great, a great job. But, but how do you manage somebody when they haven't done a great job? Hmm. It's a great question. So there's a lot there to unpack. So let me start with kind of, you know, how over the course of my career, um, you know, and I sound like an old timer here, but I've, I've lived through a lot of, you know, very, very impactful events in the markets that started with, you know, the unwind, uh, the Asian crisis in the 90s with long term capital management. I then lived through the dot com bubble just after the year 2000. 
um, followed by 9-11, which was incredibly personal for me because having worked for Dean Witter, Morgan Stanley, I worked in the World Trade Center and a lot of my friends and former co-workers were in the building that day. Most of them made it out. Some did not. And we just celebrated that anniversary uh, a few weeks ago. I, I was on the desk when the, when the, the infamous flash crash happened. I, I even if there was a, even an earthquake, uh, if you can believe it, on the East Coast. And I remember standing on the trading floor as my telling my team to evacuate, thinking whether or not I should stay on the desk or, or get out of the building. So, you know, I, I've been through a lot. And I think that, you know, as you the more the more seasoned you become, the more high volatility events you experience, the more you realize to kind of take a British term, you kind of have to stay calm and and trade on, right? You, you, the worst thing that you can possibly do in a crisis or a, a high stress situation is to lose your cool, right? That the time to grieve, the time to, um, to deal with whatever just happened is after that in the moment you have to stay really focused. You know, I, I mentioned growing up in, in kind of a blue collar section of, of outside Washington, D.C. A lot of my friends, uh, for one reason or another, and 9-11 was a big part of that, ended up in the military. And I try to keep perspective in my own life. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm not flying a, an F-18, uh, you know, dropping bombs. I'm not getting shot, on, shot at in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, I actually have, over the years, one of my passions, I read a lot of military books one, because I want to understand what my my good friends went through and and their sacrifices. But more importantly, I also find there's a lot of parallels. And once again, what we do is is high stakes and high risk, but we aren't getting shot at. So, you know, it, it does give me a, a healthy amount of, of perspective as far as, you know, strategies to deal with it, both personally and what I what I teach to my team. You know, I think that the best way to deal with any kind of stress, and you'll have it in pretty much any industry, is you have to find a healthy outlet, right? Whether that's um, focusing on health and wellness itself, um, having hobbies outside of work. I mean, you hear this term work-life balance. I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, none of us are probably doing, particularly post-pandemic, with this uh, hard to separate, you know, your home from your, your office. It's made it very difficult to have that separation. The important thing is you have to have a distraction, whether that's family, whether, as I said, it's a hobby, a sport you enjoy, uh, watching sport, reading books, um, getting out in nature, taking hikes. You, you got to do something. Um, you know, one of the things that I've learned from Nagal, our founder at Quest, is uh, he's a, a big believer in meditation. Um, Nagal grew up actually in a war zone. He was um, raised in Lebanon and actually had to flee to the United States during the conflicts there. Um, and it suffers, I'm sure, a little bit of PTSD. And, and so as a result, meditation has been something that he's used to kind of help calm him and reset. Um, it's something that we believe in strongly as a firm. We actually have a meditation room in the office and we offer a free uh, meditation class to all of our new employees. And so that's a technique um, that I use both in long form, you know, you know, taking 20 or 30 minutes a day to meditate. I also do kind of very short meditation. So, you know, in this world of back-to-back -back meetings and Zooms, you know, usually you, if you're lucky, you get 30 seconds between those. And I'll just close my eyes, take some deep breaths and just kind of reset myself before I go into uh, to the next interaction. The last one that I think you'll get a kick out of, we did an offsite with one of our leadership coaches, a guy named Errol Dobler, um, who runs a program called Ice Cold Leader. Errol is um, uh, has become a friend because, uh, as I mentioned, I have some friends who were in the Navy SEAL teams and Errol spent many years doing that and now has used those experiences to become a leadership coach and some somebody that I value. Um, he also, because he struggles with, uh, he had some head injuries during his time in the military, he does a lot of meditation type techniques. And one of the ones that he's worked with us on is actually taking ice baths. Um, so I have an ice bath at home and a couple times a week I, I get in and that, and that has become another kind of form of, uh, of meditation and, and relaxation for me. Well, you've got one at home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just a, a big metal feed tub that yeah. you would see, you know, at a horse farm or, a, you know, 
cost you, you know, a couple bucks at your local Home Depot. Um, it's more the commitment of, you know, keeping it filled with water, dumping ice in it and, and uh, having the presence to get in and spend two or three minutes just kind of um, hitting that that reset button, if you will. Yeah, that, yeah I, 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 mean, I do hear a lot of more people doing this um, and it, it really it really kind of resets the mind, right? I mean, it, it's meant to be a very impact. It's meant to be an amazing feeling. And it's they say it's great for inflammation in the body, which obviously we probably all have. I mean, I have like like all you know aging people, I have a little bit of back pain from time to time, and it works wonders on that. But as I said, it's um, you know what happens when you get into that cold water. Effectively, the blood from your extremities rushes to your core, you know, thinking that you've fallen into a frozen lake or something to try to keep you alive, and that and that rapid blood flow. Um, just seems to have this uh, unbelievable effect where you're very cold and you're having a hard time with your, you're maintaining your breath early on in the first 30 seconds. But then there's this calm that comes over you. And that's that kind of meditative state that you, that you fall into where you don't feel cold anymore. And then, as I said, when you get out and then the blood starts to recirculate, um, it's an incredible feeling. So for those who haven't experimented or or tried it, I, I highly recommend it. I was like many, I was skeptical, but, uh, you know, you, 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 once again, you got to find something, um, to, to take the stress away because so, it will all, always be there. Are you going to bring the ice bath into quest alongside the meditation room? The well, I don't, who knows? I mean, uh, we actually, our, our entire management team did the offsite with Errol. Right. And so we all did the ice bath and I'd say at least half of us are doing it on a regular basis. Um, so we haven't extended it to our employees yet, but uh, we'd be we'd be happy to uh, to share it with them if they have interest. But as I said, you know, you just everyone has you got to find something um, to 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 really kind of take take the level down because if you don't, you know, it's just not healthy. Fascinating. No, thank you. That's a, again, that's a really great insight there into your thought process. Just got another couple of points, um, Mike, to dwell upon, and then we'll we'll go to a, a quick wrap-up. <clears throat> I just want to refer to your decision-making approach. Um, we've spoken about principles earlier, actually, and I'll, I'll just refer to a very well-known person in the industry, Ray Dalio, who advises people to think like Picasso, uh, and one of his well-known principles is is that of radical transparency, which I'm sure you're aware of. I just wonder what you think of it and whether that is something that resonates with you and, and how you think about decision-making. Yeah, so I guess first off, you know, one of my key principles around decision-making is, once again, it goes back to the same way that we generate new alpha strategies is collaboration. I think that, you know, Napoleon Hill wrote this incredible book over 100 years ago called The Mastermind Principle um, that I learned about through Keith Campbell, the founder of Campbell, uh, which was one of kind of his um, visionaries that he looked to and had read that book at a very early age and passed it on to me and other leaders. You know, there's this thought that, you know, through collaboration, you know, one plus one does not equal two, right? If you take two smart people, put them together their collaboration becomes a third element. So it's almost one plus one equals three. So my first principle around decision-making is I shouldn't be making the decision on my own, right? I have a lot of experience, but gosh, if I could sit down with with five or six others that have equal and diverse experiences and we can make the decision together, that, that's going to lead to a better outcome. So that that's number one. Number two is we're always looking, as I said, for diversity of thought. So when I'm recruiting new people into the firm, I'm not looking for a cookie cutter type approach. It's actually, I think, one of the things that finance can really do a better job at. And it seems like the industry is focused on it, which is, you know, basically focusing on getting more people of diverse backgrounds into our industry uh, and certainly increasing our ratio of of women to men. And um, and when you get different diverse people around that table, once again, that collaboration is going to be even better now. There is this thing called analysis paralysis, and you can you can talk about it until you're blue in the face. And so as a leader, you have to recognize when you have to kind of, you know, say, all right, the discussion is over. We now have to, you know, drive towards a decision. 
And if the team's not able to make that decision, then you have to be ready as a leader to step in and, and make that decision. So I, I think that that's crucial. And then just broadly speaking, you know, like let's say that I'm going to Nagal with a with a problem or a challenge, you know, as as effectively our founder and and my leader that I'm reporting into, you know, there I'm a huge believer that you don't go to your to your you know to your leader with the problem without a list of solutions, right? You 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 do the work, and typically I'll go to him and say, here's the problem. There's three potential solutions. I recommend we take letter B. And here are the reasons that I advise you to do that. And then kind of let him either agree with me and we go with B or let him con convince me that A or C is, is a better way to, to go forward. I mean, that collaboration approach is, is vital, I think. And interesting to what you were saying there, that, that you, you can't get that necessarily if somebody isn't in the office. I know that sounds obvious, but, but, unless you're in the room where the ideas spark, where you really get that, 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 that better outcome because you, you know, you're there, you're able to, to, to analyze and come up with the best solution. I mean, that, do you think that's only possible in the physical realm? Would you say? It's a good question. I, I think that when you're with a small team that you're used to working with, you can collaborate effectively via VC. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the changes that we made that I know a number of firms have looked at, you know, when we went from this world of everyone being at home 100% to then being back in the office a few days a week, one of the challenges that <clears throat> we and many firms had was that, you know, sometimes your people weren't in the office on the same day. So we said, all right, let's just as a principle say, if we're going to be in the office three days a week, let's all try to be in the office Tuesday through Thursday. And then when we have a meeting that's really important that we're, we're working to solve a problem or working to come up with a new idea, let's make sure that that meeting is happening on a Tuesday through Thursday so that we are in the same room and that we can read each other's body language and really kind of work on that. Doesn't mean that we can't collaborate on Mondays and Fridays via Zoom, but you know, let, let's save the really, really important things for those days when we are kind of in each other's presence. It's been fascinating getting your thoughts on this, Mike. I, I just wonder, given that you're a, a, a quant fund, we're going through this incredible AI paradigm shift. So I, I, I'm just wondering, how do you see the industry's relationship with AI going forward in your role there as, 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 as president do you think it will shape the way that the CIO slash CEO role will change going forward, regardless of whether it's a quant fund, but just broadly across the industry? Oh, 100%. Um, what's kind of funny, I think, for those of us in the quant world is that, you know, we've been using machine learning techniques for over 20 years. So, you know, uh, this, this recent um, AI kind of boom mm -hmm. I think is more so that anytime an idea kind of goes to the masses, um, it creates, you know, this, this uh, excitement level, if you will. Um, but it's been something that's been a tool that, that we've used as an industry for, for many years. Now, I will tell you that there, you, there's an element of caution that quantitative hedge funds, I think, need to use when using AI and machine learning. And that's what we call overfitting, right? Because... There's always this tendency when you're building a model and you're looking back in history, you know what happened. So it's easy to, to overfit, which means build something that would have worked over the last 20 years. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work on a go on a walk forward basis. And so we use a lot of different tricks to try to defend against that. But when you think about it, at the very core, what AI is you know, it, it will go and run millions of iterations to try to find the perfect model for the past. And once again, that may not work in the, in the future. So for our industry, it's always been a big part. It will continue to be a big part. But I think generally speaking, looking at financial services, there's a couple of key areas where I see it already adding value. And I think it's going to continue to add value. The first is coding, right? We talked about this a little bit before, but you know, when you think about the fact that a lot of automation in, in process 
is it goes from 20 years ago when you're writing macros in Excel to try to take a, an hour's worth of work and turn it into one click of a mouse. And now we're doing that obviously with more sophisticated AI tools. You know, coding is one of those things where there's a lot of repetition. And a little bit like when you're when you're texting one of your friends and and the technology basically says, oh, I've been reading your emails and your texts for the last year. And 90% of the time you end that sentence with the following five words. Would you like me to just autofill that for you? They already have the, the you know technology to do that for coding. Now, some of our developers tell me that right now it's probably helping them about 20% of the time. And as that technology gets better, that percentage will go up, right? But in the short term, what's happening is that more often than not, it's taking them time to read what it's suggesting, realizing it's not what they were going to write as far as code, deleting it, and then going back and writing the real code. So for every time it gets it right, unfortunately, there's probably more times that it gets it wrong. But that's a, that's a huge area, not just for quant funds, but pretty much everyone across the industry. Another one that's really interesting is um, reading academic papers and white papers. You know, some of these things are 150 to 200 pages long. Mm. And I can't tell you how many times I've read one and I go, that was interesting and I learned from it, but it really wasn't relevant to what I'm working on. I thought it was, but it wasn't. The fact that you can take that now, that paper, put it into chat GPT and say, give me, you know, five bullet point summary on what that paper is trying to get across. And then you read that and you go, wait a minute, that, I, I didn't even think about that. I'm going to go read that paper. You can summarize 100 papers and then read one or two. Whereas in the past, you only had the bandwidth to read a couple of papers and you had to get lucky about whether or not you chose the right one. Same thing with uh, investor relations. You know, Every month we have to write a letter to our clients about what happened in the markets, what happened with our models. Um, to be able to use AI to just look at all those data points and say, here are 10 interesting observations that the AI has found. And then once again, using that human discretionary overlay to say, "Ooh, I like number two and number three. I'm going to use that in my letter. It's not to say that we wouldn't have found that on our own, but it probably would have, would have taken a lot longer. You know, my, my background is in trading. Trading has been using algorithmic execution for many, many years. So you already have smart automation there, as well as in the trade reconciliation or checkout process. We will see that getting you know, faster and smarter. I think fixed income is still <laughs> dragging its heels into the automation and electronification uh, era, but, but, but we'll see more of that. And I think just to summarize, you know, when I think about you know, who we will hire as far as employees in the future, you know, right now I have a, a, a healthy mix of what I call thinkers and doers, right? People that come up with concepts and then people that are, you know, just writing code and just putting those ideas into production. I think what we're going to see with more smarter automation and better AI is that the ratio of thinkers to doers is going to change. You know, in a perfect world, Maybe one day in the future, I can hire almost exclusively smart thinkers who then use AI to create or do and put into production their ideas. And so imagine we're all sitting in a conference room talking about the next model, the next alpha seeking strategy that we want to build and what data we're going to use and what the thesis is. And then at the end of the meeting, we go, hey, Alexa, did you get that? <laughs> and she says, yeah, I got it. I'm going to go build that model. I'll, I'll be back in an, a couple of minutes. And then she shows us her output and we say, hmm, no, I think you should have you know, changed this or done this differently. That would be an incredible way to create and put into, put into production faster you know, the work that we do. Uh, technology has helped us get a lot faster than we used to be, but I can imagine that it's, we're going to hit that J curve and it's going to be uh, incredibly faster in the future. So exciting times ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. And what that could mean for, you know, alpha generation for your strategy and for other quant strategies. I mean, it could be the sky. I mean, we're just scratching the surface, aren't we? we, we it, this could be truly quite a revolutionary 
time that we live through because these computers and AI systems are only going to get faster and more powerful. I mean, the key here, and, and this case, it's funny, I lived through this with trading and with it becoming automated, is the real fear or one of the fears around AI is that it's going to displace humans and that we won't have a job anymore. And I always counter that by saying 20 years ago, when markets started becoming electronic, everyone on trading desks said, I think this is going to put me out of a job. Today at Quest, I still have five or six people around the clock sitting on my trading desk. Now, I will tell you that the skill sets that those individuals possess are much, much different than the people that I hired 20 years ago. Today, they're writing, they're able to write code. I think of them more as data scientists. They're watching the orders as they're trading in the marketplace and they're using technology and tools to make observations about how we can do it better in the future. We call that transaction cost analysis. Um, so the people that we're hiring have different skill sets but it's not that we don't have to hire people and that we're not using human beings to do it anymore. I think that it goes back to that one plus one equals three. Humans with smart technology end up producing better outcomes. It's not that the technology can come in and completely you know, replace the people. Think about the, the flight from London to New York, mm -hmm. right? We know from you know, drones and everything else that we don't need human pilots in those planes. In fact, my good buddy, who's a retired military aviator, who's now flying for FedEx, will tell me that on those long haul flights, most of it is the computer is flying the plane on autopilot. Yeah. But the companies don't feel comfortable, nor do the passengers on commercial planes, with taking the pilots out because, let's face it, humans add value, particularly in those moments where something happens that the computer doesn't hasn't learned from a pr prior experience and doesn't know how to deal with it. So maybe the, the human being is able to then step in and, and save the day. A little bit like we saw with uh, Captain Sully when he landed yes. that plane on the Hudson many years ago. I, I don't know that the algorithm would have known how to land a plane on a body of water because uh, you took off from a busy city and had a bird strike. Yeah, no, completely. The co-piloting aspect, I think, is, 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 is it's exactly what I'm hearing, that, that the AI, it's just going to be a facilitator and it's going to make firms even more operationally efficient, powerful, uh, you know, uh, proficient in terms of the ideas that they're coming up with and executing. The, it's going to be, yeah, fascinating how firms really adopt this. And uh, yeah, I think the co-pilot aspect of it is, is yeah, it's not going to, it's not a one minus one. It's still the one plus one. Uh, I think there's no fear that it's going to just replace everyone's job anytime soon. But Mike, you're clearly doing a fantastic job at Quest. It's been a real pleasure having you speak to me today. You've been very generous with your time. I just would like to wish you the best for the rest of the year. And it's, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. This has um, been my pleasure. And uh, I'm excited to hear some of your up and coming guests. Thanks so much. Cheers.